Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, tonight we're going to start with a video. It's part one of, uh, there's two parts. We'll just watch part one today and we'll watch part two as we get a little bit further along in the book. Um, This is by the Bible Project. Just reminded me I have to send the link to Bill and Lola so they could use these for the kids. Um, just because I think they're using some videos, and I just love these. I, I really love how, not only how simple they are, uh, but how clear they are, and how accurate I feel. And this is the only video I have ever seen on the book of Revelation that I thought, they've got it, that's it. And so when I saw it, I go, yes, this is, this is great. At least I think it's right. So, you know, it's in line with what I'm thinking, so... So watch the monitor, and it's about, I think, 11 minutes, and we can watch the video, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation. A very quick synopsis, (laughs) but I want you to kind of get an understanding of a lot of the visualization that he's talking about in the book. You know, numbers are a a big deal in Scripture. Um, You know, Matthew, when he talks about the genealogy, he sets them up in 14. You know, there's 14 from here, you know, to here, 14 from here to here, 14 from here to the Messiah. And those things are intentional because the people start to think in that numbering system and they have an image that it produces. And just like he talked about seven, seven shows up quite a bit here, and it's an image of completeness or perfection. And so that's something that when people hear the number seven, they immediately start thinking of something that is complete, something that is whole. Um, Anyway, I I love that video. I think it's a great illustration. And again, when we get halfway through the book, we'll watch the second half. You have to wait and see to that time. But let's pray as we get started tonight. Father, once again, we are thankful for our time together. And I do pray, Lord, for a cleansing of my heart and mind and the things that would be a distraction to me or to my being able to clearly share the things that are here in Scripture I pray for an openness in our hearts to hear your voice and help us understand, again, what you are trying to communicate, Lord. 
uh, in these words that we're going to read. Thank you for, again, your favor, your grace, your mercy, your example, Lord. And I pray we would love as you have loved us. And, Lord, that we would uh, imitate you and recognize the meek are the ones who inherit the earth, not the strong, not the powerful, not those who assert themselves, but those who give of themselves. Lord, that is your way. May it be our way as well. We do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, we're going to read from verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1. But first, the book of Revelation, or the Revelation to John, or of John, depending on who's saying it, has 404 verses in it. In those 404 verses there are 518 references to early scripture. So think about that. 404 verses, but 518 references to earlier scripture. If we're not familiar with the preceding writings, then we're going to have a hard time understanding this book. Even in the video that you watched, noticed all those things that kept coming up about Daniel, about Zechariah, about Exodus. These are all images that correlate to what John is writing so that we can connect what he is saying. And so if we lose the connection to the scripture, we are going to lose the meaning of what's being said. And in danger of isolating the book from the rest of scripture... And if we do that, it's going to be a grave mistake because all these references are there to help us. However, the 518 references to Scripture, there's not a single direct quote, right? So 518 references, but he doesn't say, as was written by Daniel or as was written by Isaiah. There, there are just these references, and it gives the book a different feel. Rather than one of here's a reference or here is something that I'm trying to inform you or validate, it's, again, more of one of participation. Remember, it's not to inform, it's to involve. And so all these references are just spoken as if they're happening right now, even though he's referencing something that happened in Scripture. And again, that helps, gives us insight into how the book was written and how we are to interpret it. Because if we don't know that he's referring to Daniel or to Zechariah or to Exodus or to any of the other books, because he references a lot, we will take it on its own, come with our own interpretation, and pretty soon we're inventing antichrists and we're inventing beasts and the four horsemen aren't connected to the four horsemen and the plagues aren't connected to the plagues. We've made our own, basically, interpretation up because he's actually giving us interpretation when he's connecting us to what the scripture is saying. For example, in Revelation 22 18, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God that I command you. Deuteronomy 12.32 says, Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. See, there's a correlation, and the Jews would have picked that up immediately because of how much they studied, especially the Torah. The Torah was complete scripture. The other writings and prophets, those were commentary. But the Torah, that was what God gave. And so what John is saying by saying that at the end of this book is he's saying this is like Torah. This book is what God is giving to us. And just as they revered the Torah, and Deuteronomy said these same words there before this was written, he's equating it to them in that same way. He's claiming the same authority with what he is writing, but he's doing it in ultra-high 4K definition. He's just doing it with so much illustration. He is just going on where our minds are just exploding, right? It's like one of those movies, like Pat mentioned, you know, the Avengers movie. You know, I'm not going to give it away and tell you who dies. Um, but <laughs> don't give it away, Pat. Uh, you know, what happens is pretty soon you're in this roller coaster of a movie. It's like, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. And they have like three or four different plots happening at the same time, and you keep flashing from one to the next, one to the next. And John is going to be doing that kind of just quick, bam, bam, bam. These things are happening. And then even as the video said, there'll be a pause, and there'll be a reflection. And then we have to digest what's happened. And then there's a connection to something else that's happened already to help us understand what he's saying. And so that is what's going to be taking place as we go through this. So let's look at verse 9 in chapter 1. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that, our, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I, when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. 
and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what I, you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's where he starts. That's where he is, on the island of Patmos, on, isle, on exile. He is there because of his faith. And probably because the authorities put him there to exile him as a punishment for his just being fearless and proclaiming Christ. Again, whether it is John, the disciple, or another John who was an evangelist, he is there because he was faithful, and he is there because of Christ. And they're wanting to stop his words, but they can't. The result has been to exile him, and the exact opposite has happened. He is now writing, and now his words are reaching all these people to the churches he wrote to, and then it would expound to the other churches besides those. Exile has given him time to pray, given him time to reflect, and now to receive the most explosive vision of God's power and love. And so as he's thinking about all the things that he knows in Scripture, He's thinking about Jesus and all that he has learned about Christ through either Christ's own words or the things that people have talked about Christ or the things written down about Christ. As he has all these things going on in his mind, he starts to come to this conclusion and he starts to relay all the things that God has put within him. He is still, he says, a partner with the churches in the suffering, the kingdom and a patient endurance in Jesus. So he's still dealing with that persecution, which is an odd combination. You know, we might think, how can the kingdom, which means sovereign rule, sit together with suffering and patient endurance? But that's the whole point. How can Christ be king of kings and lord of lords and be a crucified sacrifice at the same time. See, this is part of the wisdom of God. It's smarter than the, or the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of man. The, the weakness of God, Paul says, is stronger than the strength of men. And, and so this is what is taking place. That's part of the whole point of the book. Jesus himself won the victory through his suffering and so must his people. If we could keep this in mind as we go through this book, Jesus is our example. How did he conquer? It was through his sacrifice. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. Right? These are Jesus' own words, but for some reason... We have in our mind that there's going to be, no, we're going to come down, we're going to conquer, and we're going to slay all the people. And we start seeing some of the things in a, a way that isn't really in line with who Christ is, and even where it starts off right here. 
He then turns around to see, right? Remember we talked about hearing last week, how we have to hear. The, the words have to be audible. He wanted them to be read out loud so that we could hear them, so that we could connect to them. It was something that we had to experience with our senses. And then he turns around to see. And again, after he hears that trumpet, he turns around to see what's going on. And now he's involved in another sense, a visual. And that's why there's so much illustration. It is to open our eyes to try and see. It is to open our imagination to begin to contemplate what it is he's trying to say. And you guys know, again, how story and these mental images produce such vivid pictures that help us to get our minds around some of the things that are happening. I, I think of 1 John 1, 1, that which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is the reality of Jesus. He turns around and he sees this, and it's what we want to do. How do we make sense out of all of this? How do we make sense of all the things that we experience in our life as followers of Christ or the things that we have read that are written in Scripture? What is the point of all these things? I mean, we've got talking snakes. We've got axe heads that are floating, right? We, we've got all these kinds of things. We have repeated laws not to boil uh, you know, the baby goat in the mother's milk. You know, what, what's going on with that? And we got genealogies, and we have thundering prophets saying, thus says the Lord. Then we have statements, you know, that seem very, I don't know, almost paradoxical, right? It's like the, if you want to save your life, you must you lose it. You know, and we've got all these different kinds of things for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Or I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. All these sayings that are going on, what, what do we do? Is there a point to them? Is there a plot in this? How do all these things fit together? Do they? And the answer is yes. And the answer is they do through Christ. That's why Jesus could say, you search the scriptures and think in them you have life, but they are that which speak of me. God was on this trajectory the whole time to get to the point of Christ, and it's still taking place. And so where we find the answer, it is in Christ. That's the point. But how are we going to describe Jesus? If he is the point of all of this, of all those things that were written in the law, of all those stories that were told, in the Old Testament, through all the various books, if he is the point of all the prophets, and of course throughout the New Testament, how do you describe him? And so John describes him first like the Son of Man, which immediately put them into Daniel chapter 7. Immediately they saw 
the Son of Man as a reference. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the description here is to capture. No, it's to command, really, our attention. The reality of who Jesus is is to floor us. It is to drop us to our knees, which is what happens when he turns around and sees him and explains that description. And so it starts off with this definition of the son of man. And it's interesting that that would be the definition he would start off. Because the same son of man that he's talking about was known by them to be the one who ate with the prostitutes and tax collectors. It was the one who picked up children. It was the one who broke bread and and washed the disciples' feet. And so we have these understandings of who Jesus is and this disclosure of who he is in Scripture, but then we have this, he's the Son of Man, this commanding presence where his kingdom shall not end and shall not pass away. It could be a difficult thing for John's readers in the light of where they were and all that they knew and all that was told and written about Jesus to forget the majesty of who he was. And so in a Daniel-esque kind of description, it's introduced to challenge their imagination to see him as he really is but it also includes all that you know he was. And again, we are always dancing on this line where heaven meets earth, where God's words meet our ears, where heavenly vision come into our eyes, where what is divine takes on the form of human flesh. And they're all working here together. And so he starts off and he says, the lampstands. We find the Son of Man in the midst of the seven churches. There is an intentional contrast that we will see later between the Son of Man and these churches. And it was hard, and I think it's still difficult today, to really glamorize, right, uh, communities of faith. I mean, churches have problems. All of them do. I mean, they're dealing with all kinds of people who have all kinds of issues. You've got people who are struggling in all kinds of ways. Um, There are people who lack characteristics of Christ, who, who are faithless sometimes, right? I'm faithless sometimes. I mean, we have all these deficiencies, and we're going to see the contrast between Christ and our deficiencies But remember, Jesus' birth was in a stable. It it reached to the the shepherds and to the people who were low. His coronation was a cross. He was lowly and meek and said to learn of me, to take my yoke on you. For 
my yoke is easy, my burden is light, right? And so the revelation is to reveal that he is more, and we're getting a glimpse of that here. Yeah, we know who he is, but there's something powerful taking place here. And the description that he he gives of him is pretty amazing, right? He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head is white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand. He held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And so this vision here is pretty powerful, right? It's meant to make us go, wow, that's amazing. A great deal of this book is about ideas made visible. Right? Illustrations. On the one hand, the scripture made real. On the other hand, uh, on one hand, let's see, start again. On the one hand, it's to make ideas visible on the one hand, scripture made real on the other. It is, in fact, the sort of thing that someone who is soaked in scripture might see in a dream after pondering and praying for many days. Right? He's thinking, he's been praying, he's on this island. He probably has a lot of alone time to meditate on these things. And as he's doing things, these visions are coming to him. He's seeing these things, they come together. And the vision of the two characters in one of the most famous visions, that of Daniel chapter 7, along with the book of Exodus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, he goes on and quotes all of these. And he just weaves them through. Doesn't say, this is what they say. He just uses their words, and we're left to try and find them. It's like one of those magazines. Whenever you'd go to the dentist, they had that one magazine. I forget what it was called. Was it Outlook? Highlights, that is it. And you always had the picture, and you had to find the hidden pictures in that. And there was always some kid with a pencil who went before you, right, and did that. And so what's happening here is there's so many things hidden that we've just got to find He's writing them because they were within him. He had been seeing these things, meditating on these things, and God spoke to him through these things. There is the suffering of God's people reaches its height. The ancient of days takes his seat in heaven, and one like the Son of Man. In other words, a human figure representing God's people. And in a measure, all of humanity. All the human race is presented before him and enthroned alongside him. Now, in John's vision, these two pictures seem to have merged. And when we're looking at Jesus, he is saying we are looking straight through him at the Father himself. All these descriptions of him are helping us to see God clearly. And the vision begins with a description of his clothing, a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Similar to Exodus chapter 9, where it talks about Aaron, who is a priest, wearing that kind of a robe, a long robe. And so he's taking on this role of a priest. Well, what was the role of a priest? A priest presents God to people and presents people to God. 
And that is one of the roles that Jesus is taking now. And that's one of the things that we see in the clothing being described here. We see his hair that is white like wool and as pure as snow. And it is a sign of purity. Right? It is a sign that he is not flawed, that he is not tainted, that all that is coming from him is right and is just and is good. How important is it to be able to trust someone, right? How important is it to be able to know that you can trust what a person is saying, that they're not trying to use you, they're not trying to take advantage of you, that they don't have ulterior motives, right? We, we, we think of car salesmen, used car salesmen, and I have friends who are, so I'm not going to bash them all, but... The idea and stereotype is they're, they're going to lie to you, right? They're going to tell you the car is great when really it's a lemon. They're going to tell you that this is the lowest they can go on the price, but if they go back to the office and come back three times, they'll get the price down lower, right? And it's like, man, can I trust you or not? Oh, this is as low as I can go. Is it? How important it is to trust someone when they say, I love you? How important is it to be able to trust that the person is pure, that the motives are right, that you can put stock, you can put your life into their care? And so purity really is representing that ability to trust. There is a pureness there that isn't tainted. And, you know, I think sometimes when I think I want to be genuine, it's similar. I want to be pure. I want to be real. I don't want to have ulterior motives. I I don't want to, to be saying one thing and thinking or acting another. And that could be so hard especially when you're dealing with people. How can I be true? How can I be pure without having ulterior motives that are self-centered, that are selfish, that aren't noble? And when we come across those, again, we see the contrast between us and Christ. And then he talks about his eyes. And it talks about this fire that's burning from them, right? This flaming fire that's coming out of them. And there are a lot of, we're like a flame of fire. There's a lot of references to fire. I mean, there was the pillar of fire. There was the burning bush. There was altar with fire. God would consume the altar with fire many times in Scripture. And fire really is a representation of holiness. Remember when Moses went to the burning bush, he had to take his sandals off because the ground was holy. And so the idea of this fire, there, there is holiness. And, and holiness is uniqueness, right? It, it's something that is almost strange. There is something other about it. 
Maybe you've been in holy moments, right? There's an event, something that's happening, and it just seems like it's a holy moment. It could be something that happens at a church or even at a time of worshiping. I've had holy moments when I've been in a hospital room on the deathbed with a family. And I just feel this is a holy moment where I am a part of something that is very, very special. And there's a a sacredness about that. And so his eyes are a flame of fire. There is a holiness. There is something unique in who he is that is taking place. And when holiness gets in us, it changes us. Our God is a consuming fire, right? He's meant to consume us. He's meant to get rid of all the junk that is in us. And so when someone stares at you and looks at you, and it almost feels like they're staring into your soul, right? They're just looking at you. What Christ is doing with this illustration of eyes of fire is he's trying to penetrate and allow his holiness to consume what is unholy. What's unholy in your life? You don't have to tell me. Do you know? When Christ looks at you, what is the unholiness that needs to be consumed? Because all these pictures are there to impact us. We see later John falls to his knees. That's his response to this vision of Christ. He can't stand before him. What do we need to see within us? It says then that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. In contrast, again, to Daniel's vision of the governments and all that they were, they had the feet that were of iron and clay that were not solid. And here we see that his feet, the foundation is firm, that they aren't going to tarnish, that they aren't going to break, that they've been tested and they're secure. We hear his voice. And the metaphor says nothing about the meaning of the words. It describes the sound of his voice like that of a roar of many waters. And that is so captivating, right? If you've ever been to a place where there is a thundering waterfall or ocean waves are breaking, where where the Water is so loud, it's very powerful. But then it's also very soothing, right? Water can be just very soothing. Even a waterfall, just that constant steady roar, as powerful as it is, pretty soon it has a way of just lulling you into a place of relaxation. And so what a beautiful 
you know, illustration of his voice, that of many waters. It's something that's powerful, yet it's something that is able to soothe at the same time. And it's something that you can't ignore. When you go to that place where the waters are just so loud, you notice it. It's just, wow. So his voice is impressive. It's, it's pounding. <clears throat> it's commanding. And then it says, in his right hands, he held the seven stars, which is interesting because at the right hand is where you have things that you use. Right? I always heard that if I'm going to work someplace for somebody, you want to be his right-hand man. Right? You got to be the right hand. He needs to trust you like you were his right hand. That way, he won't get rid of you because he's not going to get rid of his right hand. Right? You're, you're too valuable. And so the right hand is something that is there for use. And his right hand means it's ready for use. And so the idea that these are in his hand is that they're there ready for him. The seven stars ready to be used by him. And then, of course, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Immediately, I think of Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. God is able to pierce and get into the most important areas. But something interesting about this sword and this word. Because, again, I remember our kids when they were growing up, we got them posters with swords. And, you know, people have had, you know, pouches for their Bible like it's a sword or they have the sword written on their Bible cover. And it's like, this is my weapon. But you remember in the garden after Jesus had prayed and they were coming to take him away. And as they all approached him, they said, whom do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus. And he said, I am he. And they all fell down. And then contrast it with Peter, who took a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest. You see, his words are what changed lives. His words are what pierce. It is not a sword that you can handle. It is not that kind of sword that is going to conquer. It is actually his words. And what an incredible contrast that is when they're taking him away to be crucified. And he has the power to knock them down with his words. Peter can only get an ear with a sword. And Jesus has to fix that. Right? And so once again, we're seeing this illustration that is very powerful and looks like that of conquering, but it's words. It's his voice. It's what's coming out of him. That's where the power is. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, it says, He shall judge between the nations 
and shall decide disputes of many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Right? There's going to be a change that takes place. And the sword is beginning to show us what that change looks like. And then it says, his face was shining like the sun. I think of Moses when he came down from the mountain and the people couldn't look at him because he was aglow. Right? He was shining because of his connection to God. And that's the radiance of who he is. He's shining with the presence of God because he is the presence of God. Remember, we're looking through this image of Christ and we're seeing the throne of God as much as we can, as much as we can imagine, because that's all we can do. We can't actually see it. We can only imagine. And so all these pictures of who Jesus is is helping us to see the heart and the, the throne of God that's taking place right there. And it's interesting. The vision is both heard and is seen. And John describes Jesus in seven different ways. Right? Again, that number comes up. It's a perfect description. Right? We don't usually sit and count, but they would have. They would say, okay, oh, there's seven. Okay, the se- he's making a point here. He's going that. And again, when he saw this, he fell down as dead. The response to this is one where he's just overwhelmed and he just falls down as if he's dead. But then he lays his hand on him saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. What an interesting thing to say. To say, fear not, I am the first and the last. Usually it's a fear not, don't worry, the sword's not going to cut you, right? I'm not going to burn you. But to say, fear not, I am the first and the last. What an interesting thing to say. The living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death in Hades. What is he saying? He's saying, Life is in my hands. From the beginning to the end, I've got it covered. And so he isn't just addressing the fear of who he's seeing. He's addressing the fear of what they are living. The persecution that they are going through. The fears that we experience. When maybe we are facing serious Ailments, when we are facing difficult situations, serious things. And he says, don't be afraid. Why not? Because I am the beginning and I am the end. I hold the keys to life itself. And see, this picture is supposed to paint a picture that from the beginning to the end, you are somewhere in the middle and wherever you go, he is there. Don't be afraid. I'm there. At the baptism, after the baptism, my grandson Judah wanted to go in the pool, had to go in the pool, right? Of course he had to go in the pool. 
And so he was there and he's just wanting to go in the steps. And finally, you know, in the steps, I got in the pool and just getting him to jump to me, right? Just getting that jump and just remembering that time. I'm here. You can trust me. And he'd just lean. He couldn't jump off the edge yet. He wasn't quite ready for that. I don't know if you're there for that, Grandpa. But I was there on the steps where he would lean in and I'd just bounce him around, you know, and he'd laugh and have a great time. You can lean in to God. He's there. But I'm sick but I don't have enough money to make ends meet. You can lean in, I'm there. Doesn't mean you won't have any problems. It doesn't mean you will not continue to be sick. It doesn't mean you're going to get that job. It doesn't mean you won't have struggles, but I am there. You can lean on me from the beginning to the end. There's nowhere you can go where I'm not there. And he tells them to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Remember, these are the messengers. This is in my hand. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, it's a perfect number for a reason. Because even though he's going to go on and talk about seven churches, he is talking about all the churches. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, it's kind of meditative. It's almost like it, the noise and the power just kind of lulled you into you know, thinking. It's just a that consistency. Powerful pictures. Any other thoughts or questions on, you know, we keep going back from this, you know, conquering to this suffering. That's going to be happening throughout this book. And it's so important because if we lose sight of who Christ is and we just make him a general, right, like a military general, then we've lost Christ. And we don't want to lose Jesus. <laughs> Mary and Joseph did that once, and we don't want to do that now. No, not necessarily. It's just a, no, it's just a figurative for the right hand is what you would have. That's what's there. Like he's at the right hand of God. That means he's in a position to be used by him position of authority so in his right hand is something that he is going to utilize um, and really it's saying that he is there with those seven churches right he's using those seven stars that were the seven angels that are going to be with the seven lampstands um, he's basically saying i'm with them and i'm using this to minister to them in that way yep we'll get into lots of sevens Again, Rome, Rome is very important to this book, the Rome then. <laughs> Gosh, anyway, won't go into all those things I heard way back when about popes and stuff. That's terrible. Anyway, let's pray. Father, I do pray that even this small portion and this loud image of you would cause us to think, would help us to imagine you and all that you are, to 
bring to life, Father, the characteristics that are yours in these words and in these descriptions, Lord. May we, as we hear them, Lord, and as we talk about them, may we see them. And may we be, again, engulfed in our senses uh, by you, uh, allowing you to have uh, a deeper effect in our lives, Lord, to actually change us, God, so that we don't continue, Father, living lives that are unholy, that are complacent, that are lazy, that are less than what you have intended for us. And Lord, we all do that to some degree, but Lord, these visions are meant to stir us to push in further. And I pray it would. And I do thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.